Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Gagan Pod as we drill down into some of the biggest talking points here in Australian football. David Weiner with you, joined by some Aussie football royalty today for today's episode. But to keep me on the straight and narrow to start with, Mel McLaughlin, welcome back. Oh, Dave, good luck with that. But thank you. Thanks for having me. And great to be outside. Yeah, if you hear some people walking around or tapping us, tapping the mics or whispering over our ears, we are in the centre of Optus Sport here, or Optus HQ in Sydney, and it's uh, great to be outdoors for a bit of sunshine for today's podcast. Episode 20 today, Mill. You were there for episode one. Mm. We're still alive, so thanks for... What a journey. What a journey it's been. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to our loyal listeners for keeping us afloat for 20 weeks. But to celebrate a big milestone, uh, we've got a very special guest here with us in Sydney, Mark Schwarzer, or the Schwarzenator. Yeah, you know what? I actually didn't know whether you called it the the gagging pod then, or was the, the 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 what is it the the gagging pod? Well, we needed. Well, excuse my uh, German, my <laughs> appalling German accent. <laughs> <laughs> it varies every single week, but <laughs> but welcome, Mark. Great Thank to you have you much. here, and we look forward to tucking into some big issues with you. And I know you can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Paul Ocon, a favourite of the show, he knows how to say the gagging pod. How are you? Good morning, mate. It's great to be here amongst. Uh, <laughs> Royalty with the big Schwartzy in town. How are you dealing with your superhero title? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been emotional. It's been interesting, um, and uh, I've enjoyed it. It's been been nice. And I, I, I said it the other day, and I got a lot of flack for it actually. That when you um, animated, I think you realise that you know you've uh, you've made some strides in your career. That when someone actually turned you into an anime. But you are here as the Schwarzenegger <laughs> for the FIFA World FIFA Women's World Cup Trophy Tour. Tell us a little bit what you've done in Sydney um, and becoming an ambassador for, for for FIFA. Not a real lot, actually. I've just hung out and just seen some friends. And you know, and I, I've been uh, obviously involved with the trophy when the trophy arrived here on uh, on Sunday. Really dramatic entry uh, across the harbour under the bridge and uh, was presented then to the Australian public. Um, and it was very nice. It was it was uh, great to be there. Kaya Simons was there from the Matildas. So it was uh, nice to be part of the uh, the whole process of showing the Australian public what the Women's World Cup looks like. And, you know, there's a lot of obviously supporters out there that are hoping that, uh, you know, the Matildas can go that step further than they have in the past and, and, and win the Women's World Cup, which we all believe there is a chance. Very much so. We're going to touch on that shortly as well. But guys, as I said, today we're going to take a step away from the the Premier League and Champions League and all the great stuff we've talked about week in, week out, because we want to make use of you being here, Mark, and talk about some of the the issues in the local game. Um, So before we kick off, I I just want to get a a quick line from all of you. If we were going to the doctors for the uh, the Australian (laughs) game, where do we actually start? What what is the key um, issue or talking point that you're most looking forward to almost interested in discussing today. Mel? Well, there's no one answer in terms of, you said, the one issue, because there are many, as we know. Um, grassroots, right through the A-League, so <laughs> one or two issues there. Paolo? Uh, yeah, Mel just said it all. Same, same here. I, I think there's so so many issues. Um, obviously, there's probably a, a few that are, are, are more important, but certainly um, one area I think uh, um, we'll be discussing heavily is uh, the A-League. Yep, the stopwatch is on because we could go for a couple of hours. But Mark, what, what about you coming back home and, and having a look at things? Well, I think uh, there's an interesting time, obviously, in Australian football when you talk about the new governance of the game. And I think uh, whenever something like that happens, whether you go for a new insurance, you need a full body medical. And I think that's what we're going to be at. I think the, the whole game itself in this country needs a full medical. We'll try it and we'll try and give a bit of a diagnosis today. Um, we'll start off quickly, actually, on the Socceroos. It's been a bit of the time since we've seen them in action. I mean, in fact, they didn't play in this international break because of the uh, Graham Arnold's Oli Roos commitments. But we haven't uh, talked to you about the Asian Cup and where the Socceroos are at. Mark, what was your assessment of them there and just the current state of the crop that we've got in green and gold? Um, I think, you know, for me, the performances and the results um, and actually, you know, the, the positioning of, of the Socceroos during the Asian Cup is pretty much what I'd expected it to be at. Um, obviously, off the back of a World Cup, it's always very, very difficult to, to, to back it up and go to an Asian Cup. Um, they showed, obviously, in 2015, hosting the Asian Cup, that uh, their full 
their full attention was to win the Asian Cup on home soil. This time around, it was different. It was to go to the World Cup, get the best out they could out of that group of players, and then it became a bit of a rebuilding process. Um, and I think uh, it's very much where we are. We're in a rebuilding process, um, and uh, Graham Arnold's got a big job in his hand, which I'm sure he knew was going to be the case when he took over. And uh, we are at a point where where we look at the squad, we look at the players uh, throughout individually, and we think that there's a there's a, a big gap to what we've had in the past. However, I think Graham Arnold um, is you know is the guy that can get the best out of the group of players that we have at this moment in time. Question for both of you. Uh, I miss the, uh, I guess, the pedestal with which the Socceroos have been on for so many years. I think they were so revered and, and, you know, come World Cup time or when they compete, you know, the the public still loved them. But it's not how it was for many different reasons. And we know 05 and 06, we know what happened there. And we've obviously qualified for every World Cup since. And that would indicate that we're in a really healthy state and, and... uh, but it's it's not the case anymore, and it just doesn't get the same kind of love or or attention that it used to for for many different reasons. We know a lot of it's to do with not having the superstar presence at the top level. But uh, how do you think is that ever going to evolve to back where it was? And obviously, back in the day, the golden generation, everyone was playing in Europe, or most anyway. So, do we have any chance of seeing that again? I don't think short term, um, and I don't think in the next uh, World Cup cycle um, will we see that. Uh, I think. Um, it's been a little bit disrupted, obviously, with uh, you know Ange leaving. I would have liked to have seen Ange go through to the Asian, uh, to the last Asian Cup, which was what he'd planned to do. Um, and I and I think you could you could see that in the performances at the Asian Cup that uh, um, you know you know Arnie didn't have much time to sort of um, I think get the team playing the way probably he he wants them to play. Um, but certainly, if I look at what's coming through, and, and I'm certain and I'm certain that that'll be a discussion point again. Uh, we just don't have the quality of players that uh, that we had throughout that uh, generation where we were qualifying for World Cups. I think also if you look back at 2005, it was pre-being in Asia. Mm. And the, 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 the natural destination for the vast majority of players leaving Australia was Europe. Now it's open. So now a lot of players leave Australia and go to Asia. And more often than not, it's a short-term fix. And it's a financial reward, which I can understand why guys go there. I understand why there's a lure to go to Asia. But more times than not, it's, it literally is only a short-term fix. And I don't think they're progressing as individuals or as players. Whereas going to Europe, I thought I think we saw a, a genuine increase and in improvement in players' performances and development as players. Um, and players stuck it out longer. You know, they didn't, they didn't just all of a sudden, if it didn't work out, come back to Australia and start all over again. The vast majority of guys stayed and then moved to another club and tr- and persisted and became stronger for it and better players for it. Yeah, and that's something, it's a very good point, Schwarzy. It's something I wanted to also, I guess, get your thoughts on. How do you stop that? Because Asia, obviously, was a very good thing for many, many reasons. But, you know, qualifying also coincided with the, the birth of the A-League. And we saw a lot of the players, in, I remember agents talking back in the day going, I'm just trying to keep this guy here. He's gotten really excited now. You know, he's playing in the A-League, um, you know, Scott Celtic want him or, or somewhere in Asia and I can't keep him here just for a little bit longer because he's got stars in his eyes or I remember an agent talking about David Carney saying I need I want to keep him here but he he wants a Range Rover he's going to go to England he's got Range Rover in his head and uh, that's worked out or not worked out for for many players now so how do you um, I guess keep them grounded or is it too far gone in terms of going for a stint in Asia taking the cash or and then coming back. It's hard if you're a player and you get all of a sudden offered a, a, a very lucrative deal. You know, it's five times, ten times more than what you're earning here domestically. It's very difficult for them to turn down. If they've got no other options in Europe, they're going to take the best option that's on the table. Um, and, and like I said before, I think the fact that it's opened up and that Asia is a, a viable opportunity for a lot of these guys, um, it, it's, a, it's a financial fix. It's not a development for most of them uh, in terms of career path. And, and, and for me, that I, I said it right at the beginning, you know, that is definitely hampering a lot of development of players. Um, it's great for a certain level of player where they probably are not at that level to go on and make a, a good career out of, the, uh, out of themselves in Europe. So Asia is a viable option. But for a lot of these guys who at times, I mean, I, I, can, I get concerned for people like, say, for example, Robbie Cruz that left uh, Germany and went to China at the age of whatever, whatever, whatever it was, 26, 27 years old. For me, that was just crazy. And I understand why he did it from a financial gain, but I just, I thought from a, from a career perspective, from a development perspective, it was, it was almost suicidal. Mm. Um, 
and now he finds himself back in Germany and, and uh, you know, he's playing some, some of his best football again. So that has always been a worry for me, that, that, that lure of going to Asia, taking the, that, that option of the financial reward up front, quick fix, and then almost it's going past, going, going past them by the time they have the, the opportunity to go back or they don't have the opportunity to go back to Europe. Paolo, did you find yourself giving advice, I guess, for youngsters at the Mariners or in your you know, national side capacity? Yeah, look, uh, I think um, you know, young players these days are, are pretty... Um, you know, they, they, they know what they want um, and they want to get there as, as quickly as possible. So um, I'm not, sure t- not too sure that uh, um, they're going to listen um, because, uh, again, it's, it's a real quick fix. It's life changing, though, isn't it? That's yeah. what it is. It's like if you're earning 100 grand a year or whatever it is, 150, 200 grand a year here in Australia, and all of a sudden a, a team in, in Asia offers you half a million to a million, of course, it's so difficult for anyone to say no to. It's, that's absolutely understandable. I mean, that's one of the problems. Yeah, certainly they, they're, not, they're not really thinking about the steps that you need to, to become, um, you know, to develop. Uh, you know, there, there's that opportunity, and, and they're probably um, thinking that this is not going to come again and 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 the money's better um and it'll you know it'll make me feel like i'm a real player because i'm you know playing somewhere outside of australia but in hindsight sometimes it's probably not uh, the right moment so um it is a concern um and we, we have seen players make uh, make uh, the wrong choices and have to come back uh, to the a-league to get uh, regular football we actually didn't have that option so for us it was like our goal was to get away uh, to to europe and there were no real distractions off the side. There were no distractions of, you know, the lure of going to a country where they're offering a lot, a lot of money. A lesser league, not about development, it's purely about cashing in. Um, our, our objective was always to go to Europe and try and be at the highest level. That's how we saw a path. That's how we also saw a path of development, getting to the highest level, but also financial reward. Because there's no doubt about it, you also do it because of the financial rewards that are there. The difference for us was that I think we had that, really that only one option and that was Europe big option but it was Europe and I'm glad that I was in that position because I'm glad I didn't have the laws of, uh, of, of Asia that were there because it would have been very difficult to say no to as well we do have only a couple of players at the top level at the moment and one of them is Aaron Moy um, whose team's just been relegated in Huddersfield he's 28 now went for 20 million dollars from Manchester City when they when they bought him permanently do you see him staying in the Premier League and leaving us with two players or, or, or is he an attractive proposition over in England at the moment um, I think, you know what, listen, I think his first season in the Premier League was outstanding. Uh, this season he's had um, the, the difficulties of, the, of his team underperforming massively. Um, I think also the rest of the league identifying uh, Aaron as their major threat whenever they played against uh, Huddersfield. And Aaron, more times than not, was, 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 was marked, over, you know, marked more than by one player. So two players, every time he got the ball he was swamped. Um, and then injuries has been, been an issue for him this season. So I don't think he's played anywhere near the level that he played last season, nor has his teammates. So it's very difficult when you're playing for a team that's not the greatest team um, and then to try to stand out. However, there has been talk that he potentially uh, will, will end up back in the Premier League. Um, I, I'd be a little bit surprised if he didn't because he is a, he's a quality player. Um, and, and one of the issues he has is, is to try and stay fit like, like so many other guys. You know, it's, it's about consistency, uh, not only on the pitch but off the pitch in terms of staying fit and, and getting those game time under his belt. And that's been, that's been probably his biggest challenge this season. There's a lot there on the Socceroos who have made it or in the A-League and I'm kicking on. One of the key questions at the moment around the game is the future Socceroos, the guys coming through and what is there at the moment. Top line question, what is the current reality? 2022 is a mix of the current crop and those coming through. What is the health check right now? You know, it's uh, you know people talk about that we, we've got no striker, we've got no natural natural strikers, and who's going to score the goals? Timmy's retired, and whenever a great retires, it's very very difficult to fill a void. You, generally, nine times out of ten, wherever you look in the world, there are very few countries that can actually go like for like a replacement. So whether it's you know you could say obviously probably people like Brazil could do it. Um, you know, Spain consistently produces good players. Um, you know, th- th- there are a handful of nations, but. The likes, the lesser, the lesser nations like ourselves, and at times people would argue and say we probably potentially, because we had that golden generation, were we, you know, punching above our weight at times? Um, was it just that specific era because of the quality of players we had? So now we're in a bit of a lull in terms of names, obviously, 
levels of, of, of uh, performances, the, the levels of, of which a lot of these guys are playing at. Um, the younger generation, only time will tell. You know, the 23s obviously did what they had to do, tick box in terms of qualification just recently. And I think there's some shining lights there. There's some, there's some talented players. But as we know, Paolo and I, we, you know, we, we played for under, I played under 16s, under 20s national teams. And how many of those guys out of those teams actually went on and made careers out of it, you know, went on to establish themselves as regulars in the national team. It varied with various age groups that came through, but a lot of the times there were few and far between. And uh, that jump up is a, is a massive step and a massive jump. Um, but we need, we need players to come through, of course. I mean, Daniel Lozani is a great example in terms of how his development was in the A-League and, and uh, you know, his he's rise from nowhere. You know, not even being in various national teams. It was, it was literally his opportunity to play in the A-League and coming to the fore, receiving all the attention, doing, you know, doing what he did, and then all of a sudden get the opportunity in the national team. Um, and from there, all of a sudden, he finds himself overseas. And, that, and that's part of, the, part of the problem is always going to be that when you have a diamond or a, a rough diamond and then trying to keep hold of these guys and trying to allow them to develop more. And, and players like Daniel Lanzani are going to be that exception to the rule. He's going to be snapped up very, very quickly because of the amount of talent he has. So it's about developing those sort of players, giving them the right opportunity to play week in, week out, but having an understanding that at some stage, if they perform at a certain level, they're going to be snapped up by teams out of Europe. We're going to talk about opportunity in a moment, but what do you think in that step before getting that opportunity, Paolo, is the biggest change? We hear so much about that golden generation, what happened before, what's not happening now. What is the biggest observation from you on the coalface that is the difference from when you guys were coming through to what is happening now in that level before you need that opportunity at that formative stage yeah look uh, there's yeah you have to look at uh, the way um, young kids are growing up these days I think there's a reason why we don't have uh, like we once did um, not so long ago is uh, I think close to 10 players playing in the EPL um, with with uh, some of uh, um, some of the big clubs there um, is because kids nowadays don't grow up with a ball at their feet, um, and when they go into these uh, programs that uh, that we have now, um, they're not they're not going in with the tools required. Um, you know, so it's you probably would have heard it. Uh, you know, those those uh, programs are if you can afford. If you can afford them, then then you get a place in them, as opposed to you're going into them because you're actually good enough. So, um, you know, a lot's changed. Um, you know, when I was growing up, there was no youth development. Um, there were no accredited uh, um, coaches. There were no programs. Um, the pathway, I don't think, was really any better than, than what it is now. Um, I just think that we're lacking quality. Um, that's the big thing, and, and that all starts from a young age, from the age of six to nine. If the foundations aren't built then, um, you're not going to develop world-class players. It's as simple as that. Is it because that foundation now, today, is so controlled? There is a formula, whether it's a, whether it's a, um, a, a coaching group that you, know, you pay a certain amount of money and you're part of that system, and it's a, there's a formula, and this is how they're going to train every single player. It doesn't allow... Uh, a, a development of a different player, a standout player. When we were growing up, you played on the, you played out in the street, you played with your mates, you played in the local football pitch, you joined in with. When you were good enough, you were selected. Didn't matter how old you were. I mean, you were playing, you know, under 19s for for Marconi when you were 15. Yeah, but you still you still played for a team, and you still went training with your team, and you were still told what what to do while you were training. But you touched on it there. The, the, the hours that you spent away from that, playing on the street, or playing at home, or playing at school. Um, playing with your friends, that doesn't happen anymore, or it rarely happens. So um, nowadays it's all in a structured environment, the hours that you get, but it's simply not enough. Um, and if children or, or young kids don't do those uh, extra hours by themselves at home or away from uh, structured training, uh, you will not produce world-class players. And that's what everyone expects Australia to do because... They've done it in the past. So our expectations are now that the Socceroos should be full of world-class players. Well, it ain't going to happen, and it's not there, and it won't unless um, we fix that issue, which I'm not sure is fixable. The other bit is discouraged. The extra training 
by yourself is actually discouraged by all of these people. Well, gents, that's the perfect moment to bring in another Socceroos captain who we've got on the show today, Craig Moore, to join our discussion of the where, where we're going to get this new uh, path of, of players coming through. Craig, welcome. How are you? Yeah, hey. morning. Morning, David. Yeah, I'm very well. Brilliant. Now, we've just been talking to the guys about the pathways and what changed between when you guys were going up and now. Well, what's your biggest concern or observation about what we're missing at the moment in terms of helping these new players come through the ranks? Um, for me, I, I, I mean, you know, you've got, you've got a great panel uh, today and, and people that have been involved at the, the highest level. And I think that uh, we, we'd all agree that in terms of development, um, I think the, the main thing that's, that's missing is actually the amount of games that um, our, our kids are actually playing, um, the amount of, of, of training at a level that's actually required to, to be a, um, an elite player. Um, obviously, that, that differs um, massively from club to club, state to state. Um, but you know, those, that, those two key components in terms of you know, the, the training that you get and the amount of games um, that you play to develop, uh, for me, is something that um, our, our best young players aren't getting enough of. Uh, and, and it runs, for me, it runs through from already a, an early teenager right through to, um, you know, a lot of players that, that potentially um, aren't playing A-League football that, that really need to be at the, the 18, 19, 20 years of age. And, um, you know, they're, they're having one or two years where potentially playing five to ten games and, and not full games of football. Um, and then we kind of wonder why we're not developing or... or um, you know, we, we're not making the players that maybe uh, we, we used to in the, the years gone by. I think the better ones always push their way through before, but the, the workload in terms of the, the amount of training that they were getting, full-time programs, um, and the amount of actual football matches, it's, for me, it's key. Maury, you for you, you left when you were like 15, 16 years old. You went to, to, to Glasgow. So that development is very, very different to, say, the average individual that's coming through Australia. So was that all, all highly yeah. based on playing a lot of games, playing every week two, three games, or, or, or playing regularly, playing football? I, mean, look, I mean, I've gone through and I've done a little bit of research, Schwartz, in terms of um, you know, the amount of games and the, the structure and the setup back in the day and through the AIS program and all that sort of stuff. Um, and and we, we were actually getting, a, for me, a sufficient amount of games back then. You know, you're touching your 35, 40 games a season. Overseas tours. Um, now, when I first obviously went at, yeah, it was six, 16, 17, I went to, to Glasgow. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm obviously training every day as a professional. And um, when I was lucky enough, when I was lucky enough, I maybe uh, got an opportunity to train with the first team, but I was playing in the under 18s. I was playing in a reserve team. I was playing in um, reserve team youth cups. I was playing in under 18 Glasgow cups. I was, I was playing 40 or 50 games a season. Uh, Schwartzy plus training day in day out at the at the, the highest possible level, and uh, I say the highest possible level because you know what it's like when you uh, an Aussie or you you come from overseas and you go into an environment in the UK where it's a little bit more cutthroat because uh, you know people don't necessarily want to be friends with you because they see you as a threat and somebody that can take their position. So. That competitive environment for me um, at the at the ages, which I think um, really sort of like moulds characters and, and, and potential players, I think we're lucky in this country. We we were playing when we were growing up. We played what 15, 16s. I was playing under fifteens, playing under seventeens immediately afterwards. So the game would finish. I'd stay mm-hmm. on the pitch, continue to warm up, play the next game, yeah. and then sometimes I was play the yeah. nineteen. So sometimes I play three games that week. And I can say a oh, goalkeeper can do that. Yeah, absolutely. But Paolo was doing that. You were playing 17s and then you were playing 19s that week sometimes and then you were involved with the first team. Yeah, look, that's certainly an issue um, and it's something that uh, I think they've tried to address. um, But uh, for me, it uh, it sort of starts earlier and uh, uh, more at the the grassroots level. And, uh, you know, we're very different to, uh, to Europe because our young kids play football in winter. So you play a sport in winter and then you play another sport in summer. Whereas in Europe, football is... Um, it's not about being in summer or winter. It's being about the culture and uh, and and being the number one sport. So I, I believe before the kids are getting to that age of 15, 16, 17, 18, where it's crucial for them to be playing 40 games, I just think that they're lacking the hours um, and that connection with the ball already from, uh, from a younger age, which then 
uh, affects um, what we're all after, and that's that world-class player. That's even the outdoor impact at all, because all of your generation talk about cricket in the summer, tennis, rugby league, whatever. Uh, Is it a a societal thing that is exacerbated in Australia because we're not fully football-focused, but also we're trying to get kids outside, period? Absolutely. You don't. You don't see it anymore. It doesn't exist. Kids on their own playing outside on the street, um, full stop. Let alone you know playing with with a football. Um, so again, kids that are um, in these uh, um, you know programs from the age of nine to twelve, they train uh, four and a half to maximum five hours a week. Well, where do they get the other five hours? Do they get it at home? Do they get it at school? Is it on the street? Um, and every week you miss out those hours, it, 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 it adds up. And by the time you get to, to 12, um, you've, you've missed nearly a year to two years of, uh, of development. So um, it's very difficult then if uh, you haven't had those, uh, um, I think, um, you know, that foundation which you need. Craig, re- realistically then, how do you see the situation improving and, and, and can we get back to anywhere near what things, I guess, used to be like, which we wanted to improve on even then, I suppose? Financially, is it realistic? And uh, I suppose we don't want to be left for dead by other nations and you look at what people, are, you know, England's doing, we know that, how much importance do you, I'm asking about 50 questions here, but how, how much importance do you put on, obviously they've won the 17s World Cup, the 20s World Cup, then you've got China, they're under 23s in their leagues, they play the next day after, I think it's the next day after their, after the clubs play, like the first team plays, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? So yeah. all these countries that yeah. are coming along in leaps and bounds and are really taking these things seriously, is it realistic that we can get anywhere near that? Well, currently you would have to say no, Mel. I mean, um we, we, you know, you look at the the centre of excellence, for example, which for me is has um, been cut short a little bit too early. I mean, eventually, like I said, there's got to be onus on the football clubs to be able to develop the, the players. Uh, I just don't believe that the clubs... Actually, I know that the clubs are not where they need to be um, for the centre of excellence program to have stopped. And that was because we didn't believe... And when I say we, I mean the FFA didn't believe that the $1.5 million program that was at the centre of excellence... And they felt that that value could be spread far better. Um, whereas we know sometimes, you, sometimes if you you can do one thing very well, which I believe the Centre of Excellence program, um, you know, in the early years it was done very very well, or you can do many things pretty averagely. And I think we're probably in a little bit more of a position like that. Paolo raises a very good point uh, in terms of, uh, I think, being able to master the ball at a very, very young age. And that comes not necessarily from top coach. It doesn't come from top coaching. It comes from structured session, yes. It comes from a lot of uh, practice and, 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 and man hours out in the street, on the park, against the wall. Um, it, it's mastering the ball. And, and we all, because of the culture, because of the way that we were brought up, because mum and dad told us to get outside and, and, and you know we come in when the lights are back on and get our dinner, it's, it's practice, 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 practice. That element's gone. So therefore, we've lost time because when the player does get to a level where we should be coaching, we've got coaches having to work on technique. Craig Johnson so you lose time. Craig uh, Johnson said that, didn't he? He said he got rejected on a number of occasions at Middlesbrough. And what did he do? He went and went down to the local park, kicked the ball against the pitch, did, uh, against the wall, sorry, practiced and practiced and practiced. And each time went back again, tried, got rejected, did the same thing again, worked harder. Yeah then came back and then finally got the breakthrough. It's interesting, Craig, you've been reminiscing a bit on social media this week about the AES because they've put out a couple of tweets which show the graduate schools of all those years and it's quite a phenomenal uh, pool of players. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that experience and what this current crop might potentially be missing out by not being there in light of what was a really interesting point you made about we need clubs developing players but we're not at that point yet. Well, we're not because, like I said, you go through an A-League club checklist and are their finances in place? Questionable for a lot of the clubs. And do they have a proper fitness, uh, football business structure in terms of um, correct positions to be able to run a football club? Debatable. Uh, facility, uh, a lot of them are working on that to, to provide uh, top facility. Academy and full-time coaches, full-time facility. That is a, a, an elite so we're, we're, look, we're a long way away from, from being able to deliver upon that. Centre of Excellence back in the day, AIS, um, whatever you want to call it. I know Schwartzy and, uh, and Paolo obviously used to come through a very successful football club in terms of your, your early years at Marconi, which was a wonderful club. 
I don't know how things were were done there, but the AIS um, for me was set up in terms of preparation for the Olympics and, and therefore the flow on from people that represented at the Olympic Games and then went on to play for the national team. The, the numbers are, are, are incredible from what was delivered by that program. Um, and it was just basically, it was preparation to become a professional. Um, and again, that wasn't to say that we only trained when we were training uh, as, a, as, a, as a team. Um, you know, obviously schooling is, is, is factored into that. We were, you know, gym programs uh, a couple of mornings a, a week before we would go to school. We would do isolated individual training on top of the team training, plus we were playing the right amount of games. But I think you said a little bit earlier, Schwartzy, and, and, and again, a, a very good point and something that, we don't really do a great deal now is you're saying that potentially you played in the 16s, 17s and backed up maybe even for the 19s. Uh, Paolo uh, doing something very, very similar. Nowadays, um, you know, with, with sports science and data and loading and, and we, we're pulling people out and, and I think that there's also a lot to be said about how that data and how that information is translated um, and you know, I don't, I don't believe that we, we get enough. I think at times that, um, you know, we look at somebody and, and, and think, well, you know, they've had, a, they've had a tough week and that sort of stuff. We've got to back them off. But everybody's different. And, and, and the individual, um, you know, you need to have a program, individual program that's also beneficial to that individual. And, and as you know, there's a lot of players that can do a hell of a lot more um, than others and have got a, a far better mindset and mentality to be able to push through things. And, you know, they're the kind of qualities that, that actually, you know, create uh, a top-notch player and the chance of creating a, a world-class player. I, I think, again, it's, it's molding and building a mentality. But, look, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. Topic, um, You know, the, the question about can we compete more financially, you'd have to say that we're struggling big time. We don't invest anywhere near enough. Um, where that money's going to come from, I still don't know. There's going to be, uh, if not already, debate about the whole Asia situation for us via Oceania, which um, we wanted to get away from because we felt Asia was easier. Well, Asia's not easier, and I think now uh, our younger teams, in terms of our rankings, it's not one, two, three. It's seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So... That gap's getting bigger as well, by the way. But you know what it does, though? It actually gives us a fairer route of qualification, more games. So we talk about games, wanting more games for our national teams and, and, and uh, for qualification. I think it's a far, mm-hmm. far better place to be in, in Asia than it is in Oceania. No, I'm sure to you, I 100% agree with you. But what, what I know that the, the big wigs will look at is how do you, how do you stimulate a market how do you keep people engaged? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How do you have the interest in the game if you're not qualifying for major tournaments and you're not going to qualify for World Cups? Because that's that's very real. And that's uh, that's around the corner for us, yeah? And then, I, again, I kind of look at it. So, and you'll have a bit more of a feel for it, Schwartz. You, you, you're living in the UK. And I see, what, I see what it's done and see what it's like for, for Scotland in terms of the, the, the amount of years uh, and the lack of interest in their national team because they just don't qualify for major tournaments. Yeah, that's a national team. So the ki- young kids, yeah, that's one thing, but the national team is the key. So, so long as the soccerers continue to qualify, the interest will continue. Obviously, maybe not at the level that you quite wanted at the moment because of maybe the individual stars. However, the fact that the national team still qualifies, that's the big key. And Craig, further to that, is it a... Um I guess the fact that we've qualified since, what, 2006 or 2005, if you like, since we've qualified from then we've qualified for all the World Cups, and is that almost a yeah. false reading of the health of where we're at? 
Yeah. Oh, look, it, what, what we you said it's just around the corner. Is, not qualifying is just around the corner, which is a, uh, you know, it's very scary. And that'll we won't ca- catch some by surprise, but obviously it's, that'd be heartbreaking. And we know the fans kind of we've got the solid fans, and then the rest of the Australian na- Australia as a nation just love the Socceroos qualifying, and it'll be a huge shock if that was to happen. But it was a very real possibility last time. Yeah, and our last our last couple of ca- campaigns have, have certainly not been been yeah. easy. Mel. So look, to the smart people, I don't think it'd be a shock. I, I think we're unfortunately we're sitting there biting our nails a little bit, sort of like waiting for it to happen. Um, and it, it, for me, it is vital. It's, it's really really important for the growth of our game for it to continue to to be able to break through barriers. And um, you know, our, our national teams, uh, the Matildas, obviously have done brilliantly well. Um, you know, so the junior national teams, uh, the male and female, um, it's so important that we're on that stage that is going to put us in a position to, to be able to continue to grow the game because we're, we're always going to have our issues and, and those issues, they, they become a little bit tougher and, and, and people become a little bit more irritable and find things harder to, to, to get through when a situation isn't going to plan because I, I wouldn't say that our solutions have, have been unbelievable over the years but um, yeah look it's a very real threat you know I, I think that um, every, every other team in our area in our region um, they're, they're investing a hell of a lot of money uh, in top notch people they're, they're starting to develop very good football players um, and that's that's a concern for us because we're not moving at the same pace nowhere near it Maury, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we will let you go. But thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to seeing you on our coverage on our show very soon. Brilliant. Thanks very much for having us on. Cheers, Maury. Maury just quickly touched on the Matildas, and it would be absolutely – we have to mention them now, but it's a, a little bit brief because we're going to see a really good health check for them on Friday when they play the US. So we'll get a really good sign of how they're going under Ante Milicic there. But it was a key point he made about what that brings just to the fabric of the game and people's, the atmosphere around it, what Matildas bring. How big is the next couple of months, not just for the Matildas, but for our sport? Because their success, yeah, that can flow on into the atmosphere and the intention the game gets across the entire country. It's almost like when no one was looking, the Matildas have become the golden team, not the Socceroos. And, and that's a very big call. I just, I'm not sure... It's a very big call, but at the moment, the Matildas, they transcend any gender reference. They're absolutely darlings of Australian sports. It's got nothing to do with saying, I'll go the girls or the women or whatever, or or the men. Uh, And it's something, yeah, the the responsibility's on them at the moment for all all the goodwill, uh, because there is a bit to do, and everyone wants them to do well. And obviously, there's been a hell of a lot of controversy this year, but there are household names in that team, absolute superstars. We obviously... Sam Kerr, she has to get a mention every single time, and rightfully so, because she's all around the world doing all the big things. Ronaldo and Mbappe. Abs- abs- like, does anyone understand how big that yeah. is? And that's I, our I, I think Mel summed it up. There's some superstars in there, mm. and they're a genuine chance of, uh, of winning the World Cup, and hence why everyone's excited about them, and, uh, and, and it's why no one's really talking about or focusing about the Socceroos, because... We don't have those superstars. We have them in the women's game, but we don't have them in the men's game. Mark, you mentioned something at a, um, the other day when we were talking about the, the cut-through that Mithwood has had, and you said they're probably connecting with the public more than the Socceroos of old used to. Is that simply down to the fact that we, it's a Sam Kerr plays at the top level, Sam Kerr being shown, shopped around by Nike alongside Ronaldo and Mbappe, and that we don't have those players at the Socceroos level, big names like that at the same level? Or is it something more than that? What did, what did you mean by that in terms of the connection that the public are well, having with them? Well, I think at the moment there's that naivety still. There's that freshness that, that they're, they're new on the world stage in the moment. Um, they, haven't, they haven't had the attention uh, over a sustained period of time as yet. And so only time will tell whether or not they keep that relationship with the fans, um, with the supporters, as close as it is at the moment. And I meant that they, they, they still really, really appreciate um, the fans by and, and when I say really appreciate we all really appreciate the fans as well as as players however you you said it and you appreciate it but you didn't actually conduct yourself in a way at times you didn't actually show by your actions the Matildas every time they play a game they show up by their actions they stay out on the pitch for 45 minutes whatever it is and sign autographs take pictures and everything else and it's the little things and those little things make a huge difference to the average individual I saw something the day, uh, yesterday on, on Twitter and there was a comparison of a, a League 2 team in the UK I can't remember which, which team it was and Liverpool 
and our fans were asking for, uh, for autographs from Liverpool for players and every single one of them including Jurgen Klopp walked past them all and jumped on the bus whereas the League 2 team were all stopping photographs signing, you know, signing autographs and that's something that the Matildas do unbelievably well that connection is still there you see it when they go to a game you see the kids that are there you see the, 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 the shirts with the names on the back and we had that really early on with the Socceroos and then it's lost a little bit because the bigger you become, the more well-known you become, it becomes more of a distance between the players and the fans. At the moment, the Matildas, that, that gap is minimal. And their humility and their, their appreciation of where they are is, is absolutely fabulous. Having said that, we're also, I think, as a nation, a fickle bunch when it comes to being fans at times. And what I mean by that is you, when the Socceroos would come, would play back in the day at that golden period, I'm sorry to keep referring to it, but they would pack the stadiums. And then when there were more and more fixtures with Asia opening up, you'd, you'd see the big names. And I, I remember sitting on the sideline for many of them going, why is this only the stadium half full? And the reason is it's like we started to take, take for granted. It, in the past it was, oh, I get to see all these big, you know, superstars. And then it was, oh, no, I can see them now. I'll see them a little bit later now. I already saw them. And, and you know, I, I don't – that that bit I've never understood as well in terms of the fickle nature at, at times. I don't know if yeah, you felt that when you were com- playing. There's always complacency from both sides. You know, you get – You can't, you get you can't, to, you can't be complacent. Not no, you. No. But, but you can't afford to be complacent. No, but you do. It's a, it's a human trait, I think, to a large degree. And I think that um, you go through uh, peaks and troughs. And uh, the, definitely there was a period whereby we, we, we were filling out stadiums time and time again mm-hmm. and then you qualify again for the next World Cup. And there was also that, that campaign in, in, uh, for the 2010 World Cup where we went through undefeated, only considered one goal in the whole thing. And the perception from the outside world, what we, what we felt was that it just was so, they looked, it looked so easy. And of course we're going to qualify. It was a foregone conclusion from everyone or for the vast majority of people outside that Socceroos camp. Mm. And, and, but having been in part of it and being in the middle of it and having travelled and being to the various different countries and the different, um, uh, we talk about the weather conditions, the, the, the playing conditions um, and, and the opposition. Because it was for them, it was always like a cup final to play mm. against Australia. It was brutal, wasn't it? Was it? Was Absolutely. Brutal. Absolutely. When we played games, you know, we played against um, Oman at, at three o'clock uh, on, on a, in the middle of June when it's 45 degrees and... You know the, hum- uh, the the you know the dryness in the air was at you know eighty percent ninety percent. It was just incredible, and we drew the game nil nil. And people couldn't understand why we played against uh, Oman, who were ranked a hundred and something in the world, and we we're ranked forty mm. something in the world. And we couldn't beat them, and we actually were lucky not to lose the game. And 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 the conditions are a real leveler. And if you watch it on TV, you see it's a beautiful day. Yeah, okay, it's forty three degrees, but you don't really think about it. You don't really understand. We warmed up for ten minutes. You couldn't warm up any longer. And the minute you finished warming up, you put an ice vest on. Every break we had, we put ice vest on. It was that extreme. So, yeah, there was that bit of complacency. And as players, uh, I always said, people are going to understand when this crop of players have gone and the next generation are coming through, there'll be struggles. And there will be struggles. And there'll be a time when we actually do miss out and get qualifying for a World Cup. But then there's that realignment, isn't it? There's a case of people that reality check and start to realise, actually, it's not a foregone conclusion. It is really tough. And yes, we haven't got the players that we had before. Now we're going to have to make sure we do some serious changes. And I, and I just hope we do that before we miss out and qualify. So part of that realignment, if, as we round off to a conclusion that could go for hours and hours, is um, the second division. So we've spoken about uh, what happens when you're younger. We've spoken about as you need to play more games. But now we're at a point where we're, at, uh, we're talking about opportunities. We're talking about making sure players are exposed. Paolo, how critical is this to get this off the ground, this second division? Because it's a discussion about the A-League. It's a discussion about the interest in club football. But it's also so pivotal to the health of the, the overall game in terms of playing and coaching exposure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, paramount. Um, and there's uh, that question, is it more important, uh, promotion, relegation, or a professional second division? I think right now, uh, given where um, yeah, we talk about lack of games for talented players from the age of 16 to, to 19 to 20 that aren't ready physically or for whatever reason aren't ready to, to make that step to the A-League, be it because there's only nine A-League teams uh, currently based in Australia. There'll be 10 uh, in, in 2020. Um, it just gives that opportunity for players to, uh, to train in a professional environment as opposed to the three or four times a week um, and, and a game on the weekend. So... Uh, it then also uh, opens up, I think, uh, the, the the pool of players that um, you know A League clubs have have to choose from. Whereas now, if an A League club wants uh, an MPL player, um, it takes an MPL player, I think, twelve months to get up to speed with the demands of 
first of all training and and obviously uh, the intensity of uh, of game. So for me, uh, for where we sit uh, um, in terms of you know the back end of youth development, I think it's the most important thing. Um, you know, a uh, professional second division. What about for coaches as well? Guys, even, you know, there's only nine positions in Australia for a, for a coach to come through and actually make a contribution to the game here. Absolutely. It, it creates more jobs. Um, you know, as a coach working in, in, in an MPL environment, um, it's very, very challenging, especially if you've yeah, been in a professional environment, be it as a player or, or have already worked as a, as a coach in a professional environment where you have the players... Uh, three nights a week. Some players can't often make training because they're combining it uh, with a uh, with a with a normal job. So it's I think win win for both. But more importantly, it's uh, um, you know it's a win for uh, for our young players. Mark, what's your perception on that? Because the the second division has been a really strong talking point, also to drive competitive interest in the in, in club football in Australia bring more people in, people who might be disenfranchised at the moment. It's got strength to its bow beyond just on the field as well. I mean, I suppose that there's a couple of arguments, I think, just thinking about it now, is that do you, do you bring in a second-tier team, a second-tier league, sorry, and create this league, or do you bring more teams in the A-League? And that creates also more jobs. Okay, it may initially lesser the, 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 the talent pool, and the level of, of a league, but then it also increases it. You have the no relegation, it increases the popularity of the league. I think it's also key that we have a better connection between the various state federations um, and the A League. There has to be more cooperation, more working environment, and more of a vested interest by the state federations within the group. I mean, they're very, very wealthy. They've run their federations very successfully, and I think. One of the issues with the A-League is that at times some clubs are not run as well as they should be. Um, are, we, are we creating more problems by bringing in a second-tier competition of potentially another 10 teams or 8 teams, wherever it is, of teams that are not run as professionally as they should be either? There's no point starting a second-division competition if you, if you don't do it properly. You have to have the right types of teams. You have to, have to run the right way. I mean, it's a financial burden. It's a huge, huge outlay. What is the interest for anyone to, to, to financially support those leagues? And A-League, I can see there's a bit more of an interest. There's a bit more of a, a reward for, for, say, a potential sponsor, a potential investor, because it is your national league. Uh, a second-tier um, team, I think it's probably less of an interest for, for a potential investor in the, in the game. So I, I think there are pros and cons with both of them. Uh, one thing's for sure, that there definitely needs to be more teams. So whether that's an, a, a second division or whether that's more teams in the A-League. We know, I know there's been a huge discussion about teams in the A-League and about getting it right. So what makes it different from a team that comes into the, the second division? What is the criteria of a team in the second division? How much different is it from being in an A-League? Than a B, say a B-League, whatever you want to call it. You know, just say it's an A-League and a B-League, whatever you want to call it. What is the difference the, between the The professional clubs? second division will give the opportunity for those boys aged between 17 and 21. Um, because if you bring in another four A-League teams or another four A-League franchises within the next 12 months. How many more opportunities is that going to create for those boys that aren't ready? They're not ready yet to play A-League, whether or not there's 14 teams or there's 10 teams, um, because then the quality of the, of the competition... I understand the quality is affected, and that, that's key. There's a balance. You need to find a balance between maintaining some certain level of quality, but then there's that, that financial, the big, big financial problem that's an ongoing issue and it'll be forever an issue. Um, the definitely PFA, the the PFA thinks it's going to cost $5.36 million to sustain a team in that second division. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is huge amounts of money in anyone's terms. So the question is, do you then bring in a blanket, and so a blanket rule and say, well, you've got to include three or four players in your starting 11 that are under, under the age of 23? You know, there, there, I think there are lots of different options you can look at and yes, it will initially lower the level of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, of the A-League. However, over time, we talk about the genuine uh, development of players and creating a breeding ground, bringing in, a, say, a, a group or a, a restriction on age and, or a minimum number of players that are homegrown under the... It has to be up to a maximum age of, say, 21 or 23, have to be in your match day squad. One maybe has to start. I think that can also work. It will initially lower the level, However, I think over time you'll see that it'll improve it very quickly. 
Yeah, Schwartz, I love the casual way with which you say that uh, the different federations, if they could just talk to, talk to one another and all just get along, <laughs> because I think that's been football's... Well, that's one of the major issues I see as well. The, the, worst the, 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 for years yeah. and years. Yeah, the, 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 they don't the, want to get along. Some no, of them don't and, want and, to. And that's where there's a major issue. That's where we'll always have an issue in this country, that the game will never fully reach its potential so long as all the varying governing bodies can't find a common ground. And, and uh, that is the biggest shame, you know, because it's the game that we all love and it frustrates everyone. And, I, and, I, and again, you know, there's another, there's, another, there's another tangent we can go on and it's about the cost for kids to play football and that how much money it charges people. I, mean, I, I think it's a joke that, that this shouldn't be the case. I think kids should be allowed to play for a nominal fee. I don't think families should have to pay fortunes, thousands and thousands of dollars for it. And that's quite shameful when you see that, Paolo, football pretty much has a head start when it comes to grassroots because it's so popular at that level and obviously it hasn't been, we haven't been able to convert that as successfully as we should. The NRL and the AFL, there's just so much money, as we know, being invested in and football was a real threat and to be, of course it still is at grassroots, but I think, I don't know if maybe the, the foot's off the pedal a little bit, but it is absolutely shameful how much it costs to play. It is and uh, it, it shouldn't be like that because it's not like that anywhere uh, in the world, but what I will say, it doesn't stop a kid from getting the ball and, yeah. and kicking it around in the backyard. Yeah, but um, you've got to get in there somehow. Yeah, for, right. for me, that, that is one of the uh, most... Uh, pitiful excuses to say that that's why uh, we don't produce players anymore because it costs too much money for, for young kids to play. Yes, I agree, it does. It, it shouldn't be. But that doesn't stop kids from playing with the ball by themselves. No, but it, it does actually, I think, ha- uh, hamper a lot of people's develop- or potential developments or pathways because, because there is a, this pathway of spending a certain amount of money that you have to be involved in the system. Okay, there is a point after that when you get to maybe 17, 18 years old where an A-League club may see you and they don't care whether you come from the system or not. If you're good enough, you're good enough. But that's a long way. That's a long way of potentially not having so-called you know, uh, uh, qualified coaches to, to coach your child. So I understand why people do pay it. Um, it's just, it, I just don't think we should be in that position where people feel like they have to pay it mm. for their child to have a chance to make it in football. I just want to see the A-League and, and football here, FFA, whatever, be loud and proud again. And just, I want to see, I want to see advertising everywhere. I want to know when the A-League starts or, because there was a time where we knew there were ads that would speak to fans in a way that, you know, even getting the right music right, it would give you goosebumps. You'd be familiar with some of the names, at least some of the names, obviously. I, I just think, um, Paolo, was it complacency? I think I look back to 2012-13 where ratings were at an all-time high. Obviously, we had a massive marquee in Del Piero. We had the Wanderers come in. Um, the Mariners won. Who else? Is Emil Heskey was was there, and also with the FFA, we had a few new faces there at the top, Michael, and also Michael Bridges. Michael Bridges. Well, <laughs> <laughs> why, why is uh, everyone also, laughing? Why is everyone laughing? Stop Piero. it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And um, no, sorry. And then uh, with the Socceroos, obviously we we qualified for Brazil, so we were absolutely flying. And I remember at the grand final seeing the FFA sort of coming around, really excited, watching the RBB, you know, just singing and carrying on. It was just bloody awesome, Magic actually. Day. But. Was there complacency after that? Some have called it arrogance, but maybe it was just, maybe it was complacency or, or maybe a feeling of false comfort that oh, we are flying now, that we don't need to do too much. And it kind of plateaued to dipped after that. And I'm asking, again, big issues here. But I just keep looking back to that sort of key period. And now we don't really advertise. We don't really see, there's not awareness we, of the We A-League. certainly didn't capitalise on it. Not at all. Which, which, which question, which question are you going to answer first? <laughs> well, I'm lost. I've, I've, no, I've which got, one I've got a little window. You ask right, EO, then give us an answer. <laughs> <laughs> you heard the man. Just pick one. Because I've got a little window. I need to get excited and just chuck in everything. But I just think that was a key period, even with the TV deal, with, with money, well, the kind of money that could have been demanded at that point. And... and um, Free-to-air networks were really keen at that point. Good luck, Paolo. Yeah, yeah. look, it's, it's disappointing and uh, there was a lot of uh, criticism at the start of the season. Um, and if you have a look at uh, the viewing numbers or the TV ratings, which I'm not uh, a scientist uh, uh, um, to sort of dissect it, but you know, from what I understand, the numbers are, are down and, and it's disappointing um, because uh, yeah, we're in a sort of uh, a time frame of the year where we're not competing... Um, against too many other sports, it's it's probably the only major sport that's on, uh, other than I think basketball and, uh, as you would know, the the, the big bash cricket. So uh, the opportunities certainly has been there, and, and it's disappointing that uh, um, that we haven't managed to uh, to take uh, 
advantage of it. Is it the right... There's been a bit of talk about the timing of the season. Is the A-League and the second division to right to be played in summer? I think it should be aligned to, to, to the most... To Asia, really. I think it should be aligned to, to our biggest competitors or the biggest teams in Asia or countries in Asia in Japan and China. Um, John Aloisi, I was talk, having this conversation with him during the World Cup and he was saying that that's what he actually said and I agree with him. I, I absolutely believe that it should be lined with it, Champions League, so that the, the winners or the, the winners and, the, and the, the places that go to the Champions League position play in that very next season in the Champions League. They carry on or play through that season. You know, So I think it should be more aligned. And that it also creates a connection to the grassroots uh, who are playing at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. We have to back ourselves. Just not worry about, oh, that's the NRL, that's the AFL. So we have to back ourselves at some point, surely. Does, does that mean we? Does that mean the A-League then goes away from the bigger stadiums? Maybe it goes to Hell smaller yes. stadiums. It goes to more Leichhardt, football stadiums. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Then it has more control over when it plays games. It can dictate it plays a game on a Saturday at 3 o'clock if it wants to, if it wants to play it on a Friday night. Wherever it wants to play, it can play it. And that's half the problem, and, and I, I find that I find it so frustrating when when you hear that a game has to be on this particular day because they're playing another uh, uh, an AFL game or a rugby league game. We had it; we were playing for the Socceroos. You know, we we would play a game, a World Cup qualifier, the next day after a rugby match has been played on the pitch, and the pitch was torn to shreds. And, it, and I'm not blaming rugby; I'm just blaming the fact that we, we we haven't got our own home, we haven't got our own stadiums, we were dictated by other sports. We it, it, it's it puts such a negative spill, I believe, on the game. It's just funny, just what you're saying about the um, the stadiums. The AFL and the NRL and the like, rugby union are struggling with that at the SCG, for example, at the moment. So, it's it's not a great problem, but uh, it's well, it's a terrible problem. But it's nice to know almost that other codes have the same thing because football tends to say it's just us. But at the moment, everyone's kind of um, sampling what it feels like. And Paolo, going back to what you're talking about with the big bash, it's funny there was a fair bit of criticism about this season gone because of the lack of uh, big name players. And we talk about marquees that has affected the juggernaut that is the Big Bash as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, I don't... Uh, uh, you know, for me, it's a, it, you've got to get the right marquee um, because if you're just, you know, spending the money just to bring someone out here for, for the sake to say that you have a marquee or for, you know, trying to sell memberships at the start of the season, I, I think it needs to have some sort of uh, purpose and, uh, and, uh, and leave a legacy. And I look at... Uh, um, a perfect example, Alessandro Del Piero. We had him here for two years. It was great mm-hmm. um, having uh, someone who'd uh, achieved so much in football come out and play for Sydney FC. Um, but what was the legacy that, that was left after that? Um, you have a look at uh, their youth are training all over the place. Um, you would argue that the facilities that, they're f- that Sydney FC's first team uh, are training at are not at the standards of... Uh, um, of other professional teams in, in Europe, and, and they have their own academy. So uh, you could argue the money that they spent on Del Piero, would they have been better off spending it on building their academy, building a facility for their first team in their academy to train out of? Last year in the A-League, who was the biggest and most... Uh, who was the most exciting player that the Australian public wanted to see? This is the interesting question because you don't go, it's a Del Piero. That you used go, to be is an it, easy is answer. It, is it a Ninkovic? Is it a Diego Castro? Is it a Ola Toivinen? Is it a uh, Honda? What? But they're not, as Mel said, they're not being thrown on the billboards. They're not being thrown out on the radio. No, they're not so, being thrown so out last as personality. Season, low season going to the World Cup. For me, the, the, most, the biggest name standout player in the A-League, the most excitement that came from the A-League was Daniel Azani. Everybody was talking about Daniel Azani. Whether you know he wasn't playing week in week out, he didn't play ninety minutes of football. He very rarely did. But I think that's a, that's a, a glimmer of, of, of a, a light bulb moment in terms of it's an Australian player. He's a young kid that showed amazing amounts of ability. Whether you could argue all day long, he's, he's definitely not an imp- a finished product. He's got a long way to go. Was it, a, was it a flash in the pan? Well, this, I don't think so, but we'll see in, in the future. However, that's what excited the Australian public. And why we have this fascination, this fixation to go and always bring in the biggest name player and spend the most amount of money on him. And I think we've got to look at building within, bring, promoting young players, young Australian players, sticking with an Australian player and promoting the absolute living daylights out of this guy to become that face of that team, to be be the one player that people want to come and watch and play. That's a very, 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 very good good point. Very, very good point. Now, you talked about can't we all get on, get along. We've got along because we've gone for an hour, so we're going to have to wrap up <laughs> shortly. But you mentioned the new, um, can we all fight for the same cause? And look, 
bedtime reading, the New Leagues Working Group document came <laughs> out. And it was all the submissions of all the various parties looking about what we can do going forward. And the thing about that was it was very clear there was a lot of, if we want to have an independent A-League, you have to be independent, but think about the interests of the entire game. There's still a lot of, there's a lot of recommendations, but there's a lot of, we still need to think about the bigger picture. And we need to think about how we're dividing the money. We need to think about who we're putting in charge so that it's for the greater interests of the game. I'm going to go on one of those tangents now. It could be a long way to come, but it's, it's still such at the tipping point. My biggest concern is the current board of the FFA have had one major decision to make so far, and that hasn't gone very well. Is this the next one, and how, where is it going to go? Are we in a position, are they in a position to make that sort of decision right now? Mark, do you fear if a, if a competition does go independent, yep. and that's the, that's the recommendation that you, we're going to have those similar concerns where you're looking at... <laughs> I, I'm just worried about the process. I'm worried about how are they going to set it up. I mean, you know, I think there's lots of examples around the world that you can, you can draw, be drawn to to see how it works. And, and I'm going to harp on about it. I'm going to say the Premier League. You look at the Premier League, it's independent, the way it's run. And I know it's the Premier League, but you can take the structure, you can take the core bones of it out and go, right, this is the, the fundamental values and this is how they've set it up. And we can break it all down and say, actually, you know what? This is the this is the skeleton of it, and this is how we're going to start with it. You can take, you can talk about, uh, you can go around the various leagues, and you can look at the way they've done it, and they're independent, all from their from their governing body, but there 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 is a connection and a, and, a, and, a, and a responsibility for everyone, and in, and the gov- and, the, and the national association because they have a vested interest in it, and I think we have to get that right. I I think anyone from outside of this country to be running the, uh, the independent league would be a, a disaster and it would be uh, a travesty if that were to happen. Well, that's what we're watching this space on and that's what the decision makers have to decide. Will that independent come from the current club owners? Will it come from pure independence? How will the money be divided that comes the in from the television The clubs have to revenue? have a say. There's no doubt whatsoever. The clubs have to have a say. They, they have to be involved in some way. Give the clubs total control? Absolutely not. But there has to be a, a representative or number of representatives from the clubs. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Well, guys, we're going to conclude there because we could go on for hours. As we know, I want your closing thoughts. We've spoken about it a lot. There was some stuff we didn't touch on. Maybe we'll have to do a sequel at some point if people if people listen to this and got through it. But, Mel, closing thoughts. We'll go to each of you. Um, we've spoken about a lot of constructive stuff, but we don't always have to be that negative. There's still a lot to get around. Well, I think it come, this negative... Well perceived negativity just comes from us loving the game and wanting it to be the best that it can be here because we're all proud of the game and we've all seen you know glimpses of it being bloody awesome so that's what we want uh, we have raised a lot of questions we haven't answered a lot of things we probably we need more money in the game for a start but can we just start getting excited again can we just brag about the game can i see a presence of football everywhere of the a-league that it's going on and obviously go the matildas hello <laughs> Yeah, look, I think um, you know, the, the the sport at the moment of uh, of, of football is is not where um, not where it should be, not where it can be, not where potentially um, we all want it to be. And uh, the sooner um, you know this um, this independent board is uh, is put together, um, you know that there's a clear sort of structure and there's a clear uh, understanding and agreement on. How the game should be, uh, you know, should be taken forward. I, I think uh, the better because uh, w- we need to move on now. We're sort of stuck um, discussing it and, and and trying to find uh, a way of making everyone happy. I think the quicker that we can we can do that um, and move forward because I, I really think we're losing time. Yeah, uh, you know what? We, we've seen glimpses of what football can can uh, reach and achieve in this country. Um, over the course of probably the last 10, 15 years. So therefore it makes us incredibly excited and, and uh, very passionate about the game and uh, it annoys and is completely disheartening when things don't go so well. Um, and everybody's entitled to have a, a, a difference of an opinion. Um, I'm just, I, I just want to see the game flourish. I just want to see the game improve. And there are so many, so many uh, concerns, of course, it's only normal. Um, and the question is, what direction will they go? Who are the people who are going to lead this, this, uh, this you know, the game, the game that we all love in this country in the right direction? I'm just worried that we don't have those people at the moment. 
That's a sobering last comment. I'll, I'll go a little bit differently and just go, I go home from work and I go to the, the, the local <laughs> park and I see it packed with a synthetic... So kit. you take your football and you practice and practice and practice. You've yes. been listening to Paolo. It, it's 1v9 <laughs> for me. I've got no one else to play, so I just run around with it by myself. Absolutely. I, I go back there and I see it packed, lights on till 7, 8, 9 at night, packed everywhere with kids wearing all sorts of jerseys. They're all overseas jerseys, but they're all wearing jerseys. You know the people that are watching the Champions League, the Premier League, that are reading stuff that are reading content, of course, that are talking about, the sport, of course. Mm. Course, yeah. what, what, uh, talking about on social media, and you just know the potential. Dave, so rather we'll, kick, look, we'll kick the ball around that, with you. Oh, I think it's been forever, though. That's the, really sad. The potential's <laughs> been forever. We know that. We've, we, we had that growing up. Everyone had that growing up. It, it's been always there. And that's the thing. That's the beauty of the game. That no matter what's happening with the governing of the, of the game, what's happening with the lay league, whatever, there's still that passion um, in local parks. Mm. We just have to filter it we have to gather it together we have to control it we have to get the system right and we have to um, harness it somehow and also hear from guys like yourself Paolo Craig guys who've been there done that and can actually give footballing nows to the way the game is run from your experiences as well and Schwartzy like you say there are still plenty of kids out there we just need to get them excited again and get them to aspire to want to be an A-league player and beyond yep first and foremost you want them to be A-league players then you want them to be Socceroos Matildas and then go overseas and be the best in the world they can be guys it's been a lot of fun the gong's coming out I've been told to get off so (laughs) thank you very much Mel Paolo Mark brilliant stuff no problems and to everyone else out there enjoy your football and off the sport throughout the week and on the weekend until the next Gagan pod enjoy your football